Welcome back to Systematic Theology, session number 49, and we're continuing to look at redemption. It's God's project, God's work of choosing a people for himself, accomplishing their redemption from sin, then applying that redemption to the elect. And as a framework, we've been going through this logical order of the application of the benefits of redemption. And that logical order is called the Ordo Salutis, and that's just Latin for the order of salvation. And I put that order in your notes again. And we've made it up to the step in the Ordo Salutis called justification. And last time, I quoted John Calvin, Martin Luther, and the Puritan Thomas Watson that the doctrine of justification is the main hinge on which religion turns. And it's the article by which the church stands or falls. That's how important it is. That's how important it is to get the doctrine of justification through faith alone, in Christ alone, correct, and to not depart from it. Now, the doctrine of justification has everything to do with the law of God. The doctrine has to do with how we fail to keep the law of God and how justification is the remedy for our failure to keep it. So before we start on the doctrine of justification, we're taking a little detour to learn about the law. Now, the last time we looked at the three divisions of the law that was revealed to Moses, then to the Israelite people. The three divisions of the law delivered to Moses are the ceremonial law, the civil or judicial law, and then the moral law. We saw that the ceremonial law pointed forward to the person and work of Christ, and the coming of Christ fulfilled the ceremonial law. And so, therefore, the ceremonial law is, as the Westminster Confession of Faith words it, abrogated. The civil law was given to the ancient people of Israel to be their manner of being governed at that particular time. That was the civil law. But ancient Israel no longer exists as a nation, so that civil portion of the law is expired, as the confession words it. But the confession does go on to say that the nations of the earth are responsible to govern according to what they call the general equity of the law. All that means is that the civil part of the law has general principles of justice. And nations are responsible under God to punish evil and reward good according to these general principles. So that leaves the third part of the law, the moral part of the law. In the last session, we saw that the moral part of the law is an expression of God's moral character. And that doesn't change. It doesn't change any more than God's moral character change. The moral law is not abrogated and it's not expired. It is in force among all people, those who are God's people and those who are not God's people. It's the moral division of the law that we're going to be involved with as we begin to study justification. As sinners, we have broken the moral division of God's law. We have not loved God with all of our beings as he commanded. We have not loved our neighbor as ourselves as we have been commanded. We have not lived in obedience to the Ten Commandments, which summarize the love of God and love of neighbor. And not only that, but we bear the guilt of Adam's sin, which has come upon the entire human race. Since in our natural state, Adam is our representative, our federal head. When we were born in our natural state, Adam was our federal head, and he represented us in the garden. When our representative Adam sinned in the Garden of Eden, he sinned for all of us. He was our man in Washington, so to speak. So we are sinners by nature and also sinners by choice. It is the work of Christ in justifying sinners in the divine action of declaring us both not guilty of violating the moral law and also declaring us righteous in Christ, which is the only way out of the curse that we brought upon ourselves by, by violating the moral law. It's the work of Christ that justifies. Last time, we looked at the three divisions of the laws delivered to Moses. And since the moral division of the law is still in force, it makes sense that there's a use for the law. In fact, in Reformed theology, there are three proper uses of the moral law. So where we're going to be first tonight is 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8. 1 Timothy 1, 8. In this section... Paul is giving directions to Timothy, who Paul left behind in Ephesus to strengthen the believers there. 
And part of Timothy's task was to battle false doctrine. And Timothy had to counter false teachers who wanted to be teachers of the law. But Paul stated, hey, these false teachers, they don't know what they're talking about. They were trying to apply the law in a false and inappropriate way. So in 1 Timothy 1.8, here's what Paul says about the law. Now, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. We know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. The problem with the teaching of the law is not that the law is somehow bad, but that it was being used in an inappropriate or unlawful manner. There are unlawful ways to use the law, and there are lawful ways to use the law. And in the next studies, we're going to look at the three lawful or proper uses of the moral law. The first lawful use of the law is to teach unsaved people their true state before God and to drive them to the only remedy for their state of condemnation, which is the righteousness of Christ by faith alone. Reformed theology calls this the first use of the law, the first use of the law. It's sometimes called the pedagogical use of the law. You may hear that word thrown around. What does the word pedagogical mean? It means having to do with teaching. Pedagogical has to do with teaching. A pedagogue is a teacher. And this, in this first use of the law, the law is a very strict teacher. And this strict teacher, like all teachers, has a lesson to teach. And to find out what that lesson is, I'm going to read next from Romans chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. Romans 3, verses 19 and 20. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Through the law comes knowledge of sin. The law is a pedagogue, a teacher, to show unbelievers the seriousness of sin, the pervasiveness of sin, and the condemnation of sin. The law does not have the power to justify a sinner. Only grace can lead to justification. In this portion of Romans chapter 3, which we just read, Paul has proven that the law condemns everyone. Jews are condemned by the law because even though they had the very revelation from God, the word of God given to them, they don't keep the law. They may consider themselves judges of others, but they don't keep the law themselves. And Gentiles are also shut up to condemnation under the law. They have a knowledge within their hearts, placed there by God, which informs them of right and wrong. But of course, Gentiles also sin. So Paul now sets up this widespread net that captures the whole world under the guilt of sin. Verse 19 says that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Then verse 20 summarizes the first use of the law. Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. This is the first lawful use of the law. It's the pedagogical use, the use of the law as a strict teacher. Now here's a quote from Spurgeon on the pedagogical use of the law in teaching that we come infinitely short of the demands of God's holiness. And he said, Such holiness as the law demands no man can reach of himself. Thy commandment is exceeding broad. If a man says that he can keep the law, it is because he does not know what the law is. If he fancies that he can ever climb to heaven up the quivering sides of Sinai, surely he can never have seen that burning mount at all. Keep the law. Ah, oh, my brethren, while we are yet talking about it, we are breaking it. While we are pretending that we can fulfill its letter, we are violating its spirit, for pride as much breaks the law as lust or murder. Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean, not one. How can he be clean that is born of a woman? Spurgeon said here that if a person thinks he can establish his own righteousness by keeping the entire Mosaic law, 
That only proves he doesn't really know what the law is. That person has a low view of the law. The law demands perfect, perfect personal and perpetual obedience. Perfect obedience. Personal, you have to keep it yourself. No one's going to keep it for you if you're going to justify yourself. And perpetual, you're always under probation. Your obedience would have to be perfect in every regard. Loving God perfectly, loving neighbor perfectly. Every thought, word, and deed brought under that standard. Breaking even one law means breaking the entire body of law. Your obedience must be personal, meaning there is no mediator to keep the law for you. You would have to do all this yourself. Finally, your obedience would have to be perpetual. You would always be under probation. Spurgeon here likened it to climbing the sides of the burning mountain of Sinai. I'll be in Hebrews chapter 12 next, and here the author of Hebrews, who I believe to be Paul, made it clear how we should react to the law given at Sinai. I'll be in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 to 21. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. God revealed his holiness, his divine dignity, and the dignity and the severity of the law at Sinai. Contrast between God's holiness and the Israelites' own lack of holiness. It was such a terrifying contrast, they couldn't endure it. They begged that nothing more be spoken to them from the mountain. Even Moses was overcome with trembling at the holiness of God and the severity and dignity of the law. The law does its teaching function, its pedagogical function, by giving us the knowledge of sin, along with the threats that accompany sinning against the law. First, the law is a template of God's moral character. Once we compare ourselves in thought, word, and deed against that template, we gain a knowledge of sin. We know we don't measure up. Then secondly, the law comes with the threat of a curse. The law does have a promise. What is that promise? The promise is do this and live. But the law also shows us that we cannot do this and what we have not done it. What happens if we rely on the law and do not follow it perfectly? Then what comes into effect is what I'll read in Galatians chapter 3, verse, verse 10 next. Galatians 3.10 is the law's threat upon those who violate it. For all who rely on, the, on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. The first use of the law, the pedagogical use, the teaching use, is meant to strip us of self-righteousness. Anyone who misuses the law by relying on it for justification is guilty of self-righteousness and comes under the curse of the law. As Galatians says, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things, written in the book of the law, and do them. Luther wrote this in his commentary on Galatians about the threats of the law, which are tied to the first use of the law. He wrote, This monster of self-righteousness, this stiff-necked beast, needs a big axe. And that is what the law is, a big axe. Accordingly, the proper use and function of the law is to threaten until the conscience is scared stiff. But after Luther wrote of the threats of the law, he went on with the comfort of the gospel and how the pedagogical use of the law is meant to drive us to Christ. He wrote further, when the law drives you to the point of despair, let it drive you a little farther. Let it drive you straight into the arms of Jesus, who says, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. This shows the first lawful use of the law. The first use, 
is to show us our true state of condemnation before the law, so that we will be driven to the grace that comes through Christ. The Heidelberg Catechism reflects this first use of the law when the Catechism asks the question, how many things are necessary for you to know that you, enjoying this comfort, may live and die happily? Here's the Catechism's answer. Three, the first, how great my sins and miseries are. The second, how I may be delivered from all my sins and miseries. The third, how I shall express my gratitude to God for such deliverance. The three things we are to know about to truly live are first, our guilt before the law, second, the grace offered in the finished work of Christ, and third, the fruit and evidence of our lives given out of gratitude to God for his grace. When the Heidelberg Catechism tells us of what we are to know and believe, this can be summarized by three words, guilt, grace, and gratitude. Guilt, grace, and gratitude. The Book of Romans is also arranged this way in the order of guilt, grace, and gratitude. The moral law of God tells us of our guilt. Then the gospel comes with the announcement of good news, the good news of justification in Christ alone through faith alone, purely from God's grace. Then, once we are justified out of gratitude for what God has done, we bear the fruit and evidence of salvation by seeking to live our Christian lives in accordance with God's moral law. William Tyndale spoke of the proper place of the law and the gospel when it comes to how we can be right before God. And he wrote, the law and the gospel are two keys. The law is the key that shuts all men under condemnation, and the gospel is the key which opens the door and lets them out. I'll read next from Romans chapter 10. We'll look at a passage that can be difficult to interpret. I'll be in Romans chapter 10, verse 4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now this verse, Romans 10, 4, comes in a section where Paul is discussing the Jews who still clung to the law in an unlawful manner. Paul was asking the question, well, now that the gospel's been revealed and the Gentiles have been grafted into God's people, and this is by the instrument of faith, the open hand of the beggar, the question now is, what about the Jews who don't believe? What about the Jews who God had chosen as a people, but they refused to receive the benefits of Christ alone by faith alone? In chapter 9 of Romans, Paul explains that not all the Jews of physical descent are chosen, but only those on whom God has mercy and elects to salvation. Gentiles whom God elected received salvation by faith, and a remnant of Jews were also elect and believed, but most of the Jews did not. Now I'm going to back up a couple of verses to chapter 10, verse 2. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. The Jews who did not accept Christ, they had a lot of zeal. Paul could testify to that. Since before Christ confronted him on the road to Damascus, Paul had much zeal. But the Jews who rejected Christ and were zealous for the law were zealous without knowledge. It was like being in a canoe and paddling with all your might in the wrong direction. Now, I'll go to verse 3 of Romans 10. It says, For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. They desired to gain justification by actually keeping the entirety of the law. These Jews relied on their physical descent and their attempts to keep the law, and they stumbled over the true way of justification by Christ alone through faith alone. They remained ignorant of the true way of righteousness in Christ and instead sought their own means of righteousness. With that being said, we come now to Romans chapter 10, verse 4. Once again, for Christ is the end of the law 
for righteousness to everyone who believes. This is a difficult verse to interpret because of that little word, end. Does this passage mean now that the, well, the law is completely irrelevant to the Christian because Christ is the end of the law? The Greek word that's translated as end is the word telos, and it has a range of meaning that can mean the end of a duration, or it can mean the goal of something. And I agree with John Calvin when he takes the verse to mean that Christ is the goal of the law. Christ is the goal of the law. I think a good way of expressing this is to say that Christ is the culmination of the law, the culmination of the law. The law in all of its parts points to Christ. The law does say, do this and live, but we cannot do the law. So what do we do? We look to the one who has fulfilled the law on our behalf. The goal of the law is found in Christ, who fulfilled the law on behalf of his people. This is what verse 3 means when it speaks of the righteousness of God rather than establishing their own righteousness. The misuse of the law is to attempt to keep it disconnected from Christ as though we could earn salvation for ourselves. Here's what Calvin said, wrote about this verse. He, he wrote, Righteousness is taught in vain by the commandments until Christ confers it by free imputation and by the spirit of regeneration. For this reason, Paul justly calls Christ the fulfillment or end of the law. In other words, Calvin stated that trying to keep the commandments in order to earn righteousness by our own efforts is in vain. Instead, the goal of the law is to point to Christ, who has kept the law on behalf of his people, and in justification, that righteousness is imputed to us or accounted to us. And we'll go into that later when we get to that, when we finally get to justification. Christ is the end of the law, the culmination of the law, in that the law points to Christ. Christ is also the culmination of the law, the goal of the law, because Christ is the fulfillment of the law. The law points to Christ, and Christ fulfills the law. If you want to understand the goal of the Mosaic Law, then study Christ. A 17th century Dutch theologian listed reasons why Christ and the gospel are the culmination of the law. And he listed several ways that the law serves the gospel by driving us to the gospel. First, the law commands man to be righteous, but Christ supplies that righteousness. Second, the law imposes a curse on the sinner, but Christ removes that curse from the sinner. Third, the law threatens and lays the sinner low with the threat of the curse, but Christ raises us up with the promise of grace. And fourth, the law shows the need for a deliverer, and in its first use gives a desire for deliverance. Christ is that deliverer and supplies that deliverance. It helps us to see the proper or the lawful use of the law when we look at the misuse of the law, the misuse of the law. Luther listed three ways that the law may be abused or used unlawfully. First, Luther wrote that the law may be abused by the self-righteous hypocrites who fancy that they can be justified by the law. Yeah, I can keep the law. I can do this. Self-righteousness. It's an abuse. Second, Luther stated that the law may be abused by those who claim that Christian liberty exempts a Christian from the observance of the law. They use their liberty for a cloak of maliciousness and bring the name and the gospel of Christ into ill repute. And third, the law is abused by those who do not understand that the law is meant to drive us to Christ. Luther wrote, when the law is properly used, its value cannot be too highly appraised. It will take me to Christ every time. Luther pointed directly to these misuses, misuses of the law. The misuse we're focused on right now is the first and third ones he mentioned. The law is misused when we are self-righteous 
and think we can earn the status of justified by our own attempts to keep the law. And then the law is also misused when we resist the law's proper purpose in causing us to see our state of sin and drive us to Christ. Now, Luther did mention that second misuse, that so-called Christians cast aside the moral law altogether. And Hey, I'm free from such matters because I'm in Christ. We're going to get to that in a future study. False religions, false paths of salvation, always seem to focus on how we can earn right standing before God by our own efforts. That seems to be the hallmark of false religions. If my justification is in any way tied to my own successful keeping of the law, then I would have to ask, how perfectly do I have to keep the law? What is the quantity and quality of good works required before I can have real assurance that I'm justified? If that's the case, we might as well become Mormons. Mormons believe that works are required for salvation along with faith. One of the so-called scriptures of the Mormon church, the Book of Mormon, says this, and I'll quote from it. For we labor diligently to write, to persuade our children and also our brethren to believe in Christ and to be reconciled to God. For we know that it is by grace that we are saved after all we can do. Those are the fatal words, after all we can do. There's a publication called the Latter-day Saints Bible Dictionary, and it explains that passage. It says, this grace is an enabling power that allows men and women to lay hold on eternal life and exaltation after they have expended their own best efforts. Divine grace is needed by every soul in consequence of the fall of Adam and also because of man's weaknesses and shortcomings. However, grace cannot suffice without total effort on the part of the recipient. Hence the explanation, it is by grace that we are saved after all we can do. There are two huge soul-destroying problems with this false gospel. First, if a Mormon were to really take this seriously, they would never have assurance of salvation. When do you know that you've given it your best effort? Is there something in your effort that might be lacking, keeping it from being your best effort? And the second soul-destroying problem is that the law is exacting and requires perfection. If we try to direct our best efforts to help God save us, we'll find out at the judgment that the law condemns us. False religions teach that we must sort of like build our own ladder to heaven with our works. Or like Mormonism, we kind of like bring our own works as our contribution to justification. And that makes salvation like a church potluck where everyone's asked to bring a dish as their own contribution to the effort. The Heidelberg Catechism tells us how worthless our own works are when we try to present them for justification. It says, the Catechism, first of all, asks the question, but why cannot our good works be the whole or part of our righteousness before God? And here's the answer. Because that the righteousness which can be approved of before the tribunal of God must be absolutely perfect and in all respects conformable to the divine law and also that our best works in this life are all imperfect and defiled with sin. I'll read next from Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6. It shows us our state before God, before his work of justification and the uselessness of our works outside of Christ. Isaiah 64, verse 6. We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. Outside of Christ, our best works are only counted as sins. Not only can our own works contribute nothing, but outside of Christ, they just add to our own unworthiness. Here's a quote from Spurgeon on this passage. The best thing we ever did apart from the merit of Jesus only swelled the number of our sins. For when we have been most pure in our own sight, yet like the heavens, we are not pure in God's sight. And as he charged his angels with folly, 
much more must he charge us with it, even in our most angelic frames of mind. False religions do not have the gospel. False gospels teach salvation by law-keeping, either in part or in the whole. The so-called Mormon gospel is not good news at all. If my standing going to the judgment throne of God on the last day depends in any way on my own best efforts, that's not good news. If salvation by works is false, then why are these false ways of salvation so popular? It's because in our natural, unsaved state, we tend to be wired for wanting salvation by works. Go figure. The Puritan William Perkins phrased it like this when he commented on Galatians chapter 3, verse 10, which is written, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. Here's what William Perkins wrote about that. Where Paul says that they are under a curse that will be of works, we see that almost the whole world walks in the way of perdition. It is a conclusion of unsaved human nature that we must be saved and justified by our works. William Perkins recognized that the unsaved are, in a sense, wired for salvation by works. He wrote that because of this, the whole world, other than Christians, believe that we bring something to the potluck. The gospel is the good news of a table of spiritual provision, a spiritual feast of blessing provided fully by the Lord himself. I'll read from Isaiah chapter 25, verse 6. Isaiah 25, 6. This section is a prophecy of the provision of salvation that would be announced by the gospel. On this mountain... The Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. There's no room in this passage for a potluck. I can't bring my little contribution of jello salad or mac and cheese. This is the richest of feasts, with richness that only the Lord can provide. The passage says that on this mountain, the mountain of Zion, it is the Lord of hosts who will make the feast. It would be an insult to the host to think we could contribute our polluted, self-prepared offering to the preparation made by the king. It's a feast given for all peoples, Jews and Gentiles alike. The lavishness of spiritual blessing being given is shown by comparison to the finest food, well-aged and well-refined wine, Rich food, full of marrow. When we speak of the first use of the law, we speak of a proper use of the law, while warning of an improper use of the law. One of the lawful uses of the law is the first use, which is to bring unbelievers to a recognition of their true state of condemnation and drive them to Christ for grace. But on the other side of this lawful use of the law is the unlawful use, the unlawful use. That unlawful use is thinking that we can keep the law perfectly by ourselves and earn salvation. This is why it's important to keep in mind what some have called the law-gospel distinction. The law-gospel distinction. When it comes to the first use of the law, the law says, do this and live. But when it comes to the first use, of the law, the gospel announces that Christ has done the law on our behalf, and we only need to believe the gospel to be justified. Spurgeon said this in one of his sermons. It is so easy to tell the joy bells of the gospel from the death knell of the law, for the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Do or die, says Moses. Believe and live, says Christ. You must know which is which. When it comes down to the critical question of how we are justified before God, we must not mix law and gospel. If we try to mix law in with grace, you just end up with law. In our justification, we come to God with no works of our own. 
We'll turn next to Galatians chapter 2, verse 21. Galatians 2, 21. And here, Paul makes his stand on the fact that justification is by grace alone, by Christ's work alone, and we do not contribute our own works. Galatians 2.21, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. J. Gresham Machen, who was a seminary professor of the early 20th century, he said this about this verse that we just read, Galatians 2.21. He said, this verse is the key verse of the epistle to the Galatians. It expresses the central thought of the epistle. The Judaizers attempted to supplement the saving work of Christ by the merit of their own obedience to the law. That, says Paul, is impossible. Christ will do everything or nothing. Earn your salvation if your obedience to the law is perfect, or else trust wholly to Christ's completed work. You cannot do both. You cannot combine merit and grace. If justification, even in slightest measure, is through human merit, then Christ died in vain. William Perkins wrote in the same way on Galatians 2.21, when he wrote of God's grace this way, and hence we learn what is the nature of grace? It must stand wholly and entirely within itself. God's grace cannot stand with man's merit. Grace is no grace unless it be freely given every way. The reason why people are wired for works, so to speak, is that even non-Christian pagan peoples have the moral law written on their minds because they have a conscience. Paul wrote of this in Romans chapter 2. Even pagans who do not act, have access to the law of God still have the law written in their minds, in their conscience. In Romans chapter 2, Paul is making the case that the law shuts up all people, Jews and Gentiles, under the condemnation of the law. And now I'll read from Romans chapter 2, verses 14 to 16. For when Gentiles who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires. They are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. These Gentiles don't have the written moral law of Moses, summarized in the Ten Commandments, but they still have a conscience, a sense of right and wrong. Since people's works are not perfect before God, they go through life with what Paul calls conflicting thoughts, with their conscience bearing witness against them. In theology, this is called natural law. Natural law. It's the law of God written on the conscience of every person. The Jews with the Mosaic moral law, well, they had a distinct advantage. They had the written moral will of God in the scriptures. But even though the Gentiles didn't have the advantage of the written word of God, this still did not excuse them from the law because natural law was part of their conscience. In either of these two ways, the written law of Moses or natural law, the moral law of God is in some degree present with both Jews and Gentiles. But even so, the unsaved, they, they don't love the law of God. Once our minds, wills, and affections are changed in the new birth, our relationship with the law changes, and we learn to love the law as a guide to our lives of gratitude to the Lord. And we're going to get to that change when we cover the third use of the law later on. But the first use of the law is intended to impact unbelievers and drive them to Christ. In this first use of the law, the law shuts both Jew and Gentile under the sentence of condemnation in order to drive us from our own works to grace. Martin Luther, in his commentary on Galatians, wrote that one reason why the law cannot justify is because 
the unconverted person hates the law. I'll quote from Luther. He wrote, Any unconverted person who says he loves the law is a liar. He does not know what he is talking about. We love the law about as well as a murderer loves his gloomy cell, his straight jacket, and the iron bars in front of him. How then can the law justify us? The Puritan William Ames, in his work, The Marrow of Sacred Divinity, explains the hatred of the law among the unsaved like this. First, sinners love themselves inordinately. Second, they will do what pleases themselves, even though it's contrary to the law of God. Third, they hate the law because it is contrary to this desire. Fourth, they hate God himself, who is the giver and author of such a law. And I'd like to add one point to the reasons given by William Ames why the unconverted hate the law. A fifth reason is because of the innate knowledge that there is a moral law, whether they admit it or not, leading to the conclusion that there is a holy lawgiver that they are accountable to, whether they admit it or not, producing a kind of terror of the law. That terror comes from knowing that in our unsaved state, we do not keep the law, and therefore we are under the judgment of the lawgiver. People sense that after death, judgment will come. I'm going to read from Hebrews chapter 2 next. It shows the terror of the law, the terror of the lawgiver, and the terror of death that comes because of the judgment that comes after death. In Hebrews chapter 2, Paul is showing that Jesus is superior to angels. And to prove this, he compares the mission of angels to the mission of Christ. Christ took human nature alongside his divine nature in order to be a savior appropriate for us. One of Christ's accomplishments as the God-man is in chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, likewise, partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil and deliver all those who, through fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery. For unsaved humanity, the devil has the power of death. Now, that doesn't mean that the devil has the divine authority to determine the day of our death. Only God does that. Only God draws a boundary around our lives. But the devil has the power of the fear of death. Because the fear of death is tied to the fear of judgment. That is part of the slavery of sin. The fear of the law. Fear of the lawgiver, And the resulting fear of death and the final judgment. Paul goes further in his warning letter to the Hebrew Christians in chapter 10. Where he warns against rejecting the gospel. After being given the benefit of the knowledge of the gospel. I'm going to read from Hebrews chapter 10. Verses 26, 27. A powerful warning. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. For the unsaved, who reject the gospel, there is no other way of salvation open to them. All there is left is the fearful expectation of judgment, described in the terrible language of a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. This is one of the reasons why the unsaved hate the law. The law condemns them. The unsaved, whether they admit it or not, have an innate knowledge of the law, an innate knowledge that they will stand before a divine judge on judgment day after their death. And they spend their lives in fear of death because of this fearful expectation of judgment. The law of God to the unconverted only shuts them up under their sin. People will spend their lives trying to avoid the implications of the law. People may say that they're moral, 
but that's not the same as loving righteousness. The moral law of God in its first use shuts up everyone under their sin. For the elect, at the time that the Holy Spirit applies salvation to them, once they hear the good saving news of the gospel, the first use of the law will drive them to that ark of safety. The moral law of God cannot save. Only the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. The difference between the first use of the moral law and the use of the gospel is shown for us in the book of Acts, chapter 2, which is where I'll be next. Now, in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit has first come to dwell in believers, and they begin to speak with other tongues, the event we refer to as Pentecost. People were drawn to see this phenomenon, so Peter gives a sermon explaining what all this means. And Peter draws on Old Testament prophecy to show that this event was foretold, and that Jesus is indeed the Messiah that was foretold. Peter then accuses them of having crucified the Messiah, but God raised Jesus and exalted him. They had broken the moral law of God by having Jesus crucified. They were guilty of sinful unbelief. What happened next? I'll read from Acts chapter 2, verses 36 to 41. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. In the sermon that Peter preached, he preached the law first. The hearers of the sermon had broken the moral law of God through sinful unbelief and had delivered the Messiah for crucifixion. And then at verse 37, we see that the first use of the law had done its work. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? The moral law of God in its first use had now done its work. They were cut to the heart. The original Greek brings out the force of what the law did. They were pierced or stabbed to the heart. The law in its first use slayed them. Now they cry out, brothers, what shall we do? Now that the bad news of the first use of the law has done its work, and they're stabbed to the heart, Peter comes with a good saving news of the gospel. Once again, in Acts chapter 2, beginning at verse 38, And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. We'll wrap up tonight's look at the first use of the law by a little contrast. The contrast is between how we saw the law before we were saved versus how we should see the law once we belong to Christ. I'll read from a couple of passages in Psalm 119 to show the contrast. First, I'll be in Psalm 119, verse 155. Salvation is far from the wicked, for they do not seek your statutes. This describes the relationship of us to the law when we were unsaved. At that point, the first use of the law as a strict 
pedagogue or teacher was in full effect. For the elect, the teaching of the law that we are condemned as sinners will have its effect. But until God calls an elect sinner to salvation, you see the law is something to ignore, rebel against, flee from. Before salvation, we hated the law. As the passage says, for they do not seek your statutes. We didn't seek the law. We ran from the law in hatred and terror of it. Now I'll read the contrast. Verse 46 of Psalm 119. Verse 46 and 47. I will also speak of your testimonies before kings and shall not be put to shame, for I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. Once we are saved, the first use of the law has now served its primary purpose for us. The law is no longer the fearsome, strict teacher shutting us under condemnation. This first use of the law, it's still of secondary use to us as Christians because we still need to be reminded of the nature of sin. We still need to be reminded that we must hate sin. But once we've been saved by grace, the law now serves a different function. Once we're saved, the law is now a welcome companion showing us how to live in gratitude to God. That is what is called the third use of the law. We're going to get to that as we go forward in the study. And I'll end with a quote from a work called The Gospel Mystery of Sanctification by the 17th century Puritan Walter Marshall, where he writes of how sanctification, true growth and holiness, can only come through faith in Christ and not by the misuse of the law in bringing our own works to earn salvation. And here's what he wrote, comparing the terror of the law that enslaves people who try to gain salvation by law-keeping versus the peace that comes in relying on Christ. It is a path of peace, free from the fears and terrors of conscience that inevitably plague those who seek salvation through works, for the law brings wrath. It is not the path of Mount Sinai, but of Jerusalem. Amen. Thanks for coming tonight, and we'll continue next week with the lawful uses of the law.